appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty, walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then I will make my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Abram fell face down and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram, your name will be Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come, to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give you as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. Then God said to Abraham, As for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring. Whether born in your household or bought with your money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Michaela. Great job. Would you pray with me once more as we come to God's Word together? And as a reminder, after, after the sermon, we'll be coming to God's table uh, to take communion. We do that on the first Sunday of every month, so that's a special privilege that we get to experience. So just to keep that in mind as we come to God's Word. Let's pray together. Father, we, we pause now and we would ask that you would take your word and that you, by the power of your spirit, would use it upon our hearts, Lord, to lift up our eyes and to see you, to behold your glory, to understand what you reveal about yourself, what you call us to in our lives, and would we see Jesus in this passage so that we would be changed. Lord, come and meet us in your word this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So a question, kids, to get us started this week. It's kind of like a pop quiz kind of question here, okay? Who, what person are we studying in our sermon series right now? See one hand here. Okay, who? Abraham. Come on, kids. That's an easy one. I just saw one hand. This is one of those where, I mean, this is low-hanging fruit. It should be. We're studying the life of Abraham. And you remember what we've been saying about Abraham. He's this incredibly important figure in the Scriptures that really everything builds off of Abraham in the story of the Bible. And one of the things that we see as we watch the life of Abraham is that we see what it looks like to be in relationship with God. Now, just that statement alone, that's kind of a huge concept. I mean, it's something that we hear a lot that we are able to have a personal relationship with God. Have you ever heard that, that kind of language? And it's absolutely right, but it's also kind of astonishing if you think about it. That God actually wants to have a relationship with us. The God of the universe 
wants to bring us into a relationship with Him. That is, a, that is an utterly unique thing in the religions of the world. So as we look at the life of Abraham, we're learning what does a relationship with God look like. Now that's a good question because oftentimes it's hard for us to understand what is this relationship like. So kids, think about this for just a minute. What are the different relationships you have in your life? Not a rhetorical question, an actual one. Anybody? Anybody? What are some of the relationships you have? Yes. Yeah, not sure. Like parents? What? What's that? Mother, sister, siblings. Thank you. Roxanne, you're killing it this morning. Thank you. Thanks for saving me. You see me fluttering out there here. Thank you. Yeah, so uh, parents, siblings, what, what are some of the others? And if you're not a kid, you can join in too, right? Relationships with, was there a hand somewhere? Okay, Bo? Brothers, that's right, siblings. Uh, how about like a boss, teacher? Right? We have all these relationships in our life. And so the question is, what, what's our relationship with God like? It's sometimes hard to know that. You know, there's been times in my life where I thought that my relationship with God was kind of like a boss. Can you relate to that? Kind of like it's transactional, and so I'm supposed to perform and do certain things, and if I do that well enough, then God will, will appreciate me and love me, but yet if I'm, if I'm blowing it big time, I might get fired. Or like at other times in my life, like, like a granddaddy. You know, I don't know about your granddaddy, but my granddaddy loved to spoil me. Anything I wanted, my wish was his command. He loved to just anything I wanted, you know, he was just at bated breath. What, what do you want to do? So sometimes in my life, I've kind of seen God in that way. The, the, the question is, is our relationship with God a conditional relationship? Or is it unconditional? Is it conditional in the sense that there are certain conditions I have to meet in this relationship that somehow this relationship is based upon what I do, how I obey, how I perform? Is it based upon that? Or is the relationship unconditional? Does it not matter what I do? Has God already done it all? You know, sometimes whenever we, we, and there's certainly been times in my life whenever I thought about my relationship with God in that way, and I've thought, you know, God loves me, God's accepted me, I'm saved, He's going to forgive me, so I'll just kind of do what I want. I've even had people say in my life, uh, say to me before about their lives, they've said, you know what, I, I, think, I think I'm just going to go ahead and get a divorce. I mean, I know that's not what God wants, but this is so hard, and you know, God will forgive me in the end. Have you ever thought that before? You know, that, hey, does it matter if I obey? Because, you know, God's going to forgive me anyway. So this is a very practical question. If you're a follower of Jesus, what is this relationship like? Is it conditional? Is it based at all in what I do? Or is it unconditional? Does it not matter? You see, this is important to look at the life of Abraham and to see what is a relationship with God like. Here's what we learn in our passage. We learn who establishes our relationship with God, we learn what God promises to do, what God promises to us. And we also learn what He requires of us. And then finally, we'll see how those are reconciled. 
So who establishes, what does God promise, what does he require of us, and how are those reconciled together? So let's jump in. We're moving through the life of Abraham. We're at Genesis 15. Now, it's important to recognize where we are in the story. So if you've been following along and you've been here each week, you know that a couple weeks ago we saw in Genesis 15, God comes to Abraham and he enters a covenant with him, which is kind of like a relationship based on promise where God swears to do something. He swears on his promises to Abraham. It's kind of remarkable that God swears to things for us. He takes a vow. So we saw that in Genesis 15, and the heart of that was that God was going to give him as many children as there were stars in the sky. Now that's important when you realize who God was making that promise to. He's making that promise to a man who at that time was about 85 years old, who he and his wife had never been able to have children. That's kind of an astounding kind of promise. But God swore and locked himself into this promise. And then there were a number of years where Abraham and his wife Sarah waiting on that promise to come to fruition. And what do we see that they do last week in Genesis 16? Kind of right on the heels. They take things into their own hands, literally. They decide they're going to help God out. They're going to bring God's promises to bear through their own efforts. And so we see God's made a promise to Abraham, and then Abraham and Sarah fail. They blow it. They don't don't trust God. They They don't keep promise. They don't keep faith. Their faith is defective, so says Calvin. And so the question on the heels of that is, what's God going to do? This is God's man. The whole history of the world is hanging on this man and his relationship with God. What is God going to do? And that's what brings us to Genesis 17. And remarkably, what we see in this passage is that God comes to Abraham and he says, I'm going to reaffirm my covenant with you. This man who's blown it, who's taken things into his own hands, God says, I'm going to reestablish my promises to you. So a couple of things I want to see here in the passage. One is, is God comes to Abraham. Who is establishing the relationship? Look at, look at the part, second part of verse 1. So this is where God comes to him and speaks to Abraham. And I want you to notice the very first thing that he says to Abraham. Look again at what he says. Second part of verse 1. Uh, I am God Almighty. And then he goes on to say some other stuff. Now, it's easy to just pass right over that. But just notice that. What is the first thing that God says to Abraham as he's reestablishing his covenant? I am God Almighty. Why is that significant? That is significant because the relation, our relationship with God begins not with us, but with God and who he is. That's what he's doing here. He's reminding Abraham of who he is. Just think about that name that God, I am, you know, I am is very significant in Scripture, much more so with Moses. I am God Almighty. The Hebrew word there is God's name of El Shaddai. And it's referring to God's power and immensity and greatness. That's where he starts, Abraham, in this relationship. You need to understand this, Abraham. I am 
God. No, there is no other. I'm the one who has made all things. I'm the one who is governing all things. I'm the one to whom all things belong. And I establish this relationship. That is critical to see. Because oftentimes, especially in our culture, we want to define our relationship with God. We actually want to define who God is. Do you know that sociologists will say across the board as they study religion in our culture that the most, the, the, the most fast-growing sector of religious spiritual life in America is a category of people that define themselves as spiritual but not religious? Have you ever heard this? Now, what does that mean? I mean, less and less do you find people who are just flat-out atheists. But what you most commonly find is this huge kind of section of people who say, you know what, I believe there's a God. I'm a spiritual person. I recognize someone has made this. And I'm, I'm even open to Him being in my life. I, I would like for God to be in my life. I would like to have a relationship with God in some way. But I'm not religious, which means... It's not going to lock me in. It's not going to be about any kind of requirements upon me. Right? I'm going to define who God is. I'm going to to determine what's true for me. I'm going to determine what this God is like. I'm going to have, yes, there'll be certain areas in my life where I'm going to be spiritual. Maybe it's a day of the week or, or particular relationships or area of my life that I will open up to Him and His involvement. But yet there's other areas in my life that, no, 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 that, that's kind of off limits to God. This belongs to me. Maybe you even recognize that same line of thinking even in our own hearts. I certainly do in mine. But the thing to see right off the bat here is that we do not define the relationship. We do not determine who God is. We do not determine how a relationship with God will go. He does. And that's where it starts. A relationship with God starts with, I am God Almighty. So, also, as we look at this picture here, what do we see in this relationship here? Well, the relationship that we see pictured between God and Abraham is what's called a covenant. In fact, we see that word repeated over and over and over in our passage. We saw that especially in Genesis 15 as there's a ceremony where God enters into covenant with Abraham. So this word covenant is kind of an old, archaic word. It's not one that we think about a whole lot unless you go to a college named covenant, right? It's kind of important there. But you really cannot understand the Bible or who God is or relationship with Him apart from the concept of covenant. In fact, the word for covenant is used more than 455 times in Scripture. The only word that's used more than that is Lord. Okay? So it's a huge concept. So what is a covenant? Well, it's a particular kind of relationship. It's a relationship that two parties enter into, and they promise exclusive loyalty to one another. In other words, they come into this relationship and they say, you are going to come before everything else in my life. And another central feature of a covenant relationship is that it starts with a promise. It starts with a vow. You lock yourself in at the beginning. Now, that's unique. As we think about all the relationships in our life, there's so many relationships that might be personal but not covenantal, and that's okay. That's appropriate. 
There's lots of relationships in which you're in relationship with another person, but you're not locked in. I mean, how often do a friend, do you go to a friend and you say, you know what? I'm never going to leave you. You're going to be my friend, and, and I promise myself to you forever, and, and I'm going to take vows to you. You ever do that or you start a new friendship? No, friendship is kind of something that you discover. Oh, wow. But you see, a covenant is utterly unique in it that at the beginning, it is formed by a vow, a promise, locking yourself in. The most common example we have is marriage in our culture. You, know, you think about the, the nature of a, we're going to have one later today, the nature of a, of a marriage relationship, this covenantal relationship. I tell couples all the time, I say, you know, as you come together at a wedding, you're, you're taking vows to each other, that's the heart of what's taking place there. I say to them, you're not stating how you feel right now, though I know you're excited. Everybody knows you're excited. But if you think about the nature of vows, what are two people saying? They're promising to do something in the future for rich or for poor, in sickness and in health, in plenty and in want. It's another way of saying, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know if you're going to put on a lot of weight. I don't know if you're going to get sick. I don't know if you're going to go crazy. I don't know what the future holds. But whatever it holds, I'm not leaving. I'm staying right here. As one of my friends put it, if, if she leaves, I'm going with her. It's a great description of a covenant. And that is the nature of a relationship that God enters into with his people. So what we see as we look at this covenant relationship God enters into with Abraham is that it's based upon God's promises. Now just think about that for a minute. God obligates himself to us. He locks himself in. God comes and swears himself to us. I mean, the, the surety of his promises are based upon his own very character, that he cannot lie, he cannot change, he cannot break this thing. So God comes and he makes incredible promises to Abraham. What does he promise? We've seen before that the heart of this promise involves seed and land. Seed meaning offspring, children. He will... Uh, Abraham will become a nation. He will become a kingdom of people. But also land, this land of Canaan, this place is going to become his possession, a place to, to begin to grow together as a people and as a nation. That's at the heart of the promises, and we see it uh, reaffirmed in here. Just second part of verse 2. I'll confirm my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Uh, Verse 4, as for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. He changes his name. Um, so what God does is he comes and he makes these incredible promises for children. Now again, this is a man who's a hundred years old at this point. And yet God is saying, I'm locking myself into, I'm going to give you children. I'm going to give you this land. But then also... He promises this, which is really at the heart of the covenant. Look at what he says, second part of verse 7. Let me just read verse 7. Notice what he promises here. I establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you. Now, that's interesting. The covenant includes not only Abraham, but his children as well. 
It's true of every covenant in the Bible that it involves believers and their children. Very significant. But look at what he says there at the end of that sentence, at the end of that verse. To be your God and the God of your children. Again at the end of verse 8, I will be their God. Now that's interesting here. What we see is a picture of the intimacy of the covenant. That really at the heart of the covenant is not just the things that God promises, but that he promises intimacy with himself. Look again at how he describes that. I will be your God. In other places he says, I will be your God. You will be my people. Now, you notice there what he's using is personal possessive pronouns, right? When do you use a possessive pronoun? When you indicate intimacy. What if I were to say to you, my Ashley, my Gray, my Beau. Even if you didn't know me and you didn't know who those people were, who would you know I'm talking about? I'm talking about my wife, my Ashley. I'm talking about my son, my Gray. You know, it's possessive pronouns indicate intimacy, an intimate relationship. And the heart of the covenant is God saying, you are going to be my people. In another place, he says, you will be my treasured possession, and I will be your God. The heart of the covenant is this intimate relationship, and you see, God is promising that. He says it's an everlasting covenant. Now, this doesn't shock us like it should. We we can become so familiar with this that the God of heaven enters into a personal, intimate relationship with people like us. We're just creatures. He owns everything. He's made everything. And out of of all of His creation, we get to be His treasure? Has that hit home for you? That you are His treasure. That whatever your name is, He says you are my hutch. And put in your name there intimacy. You see, God locks himself in with it. It's it's everlasting. I will do this. He promises himself. It's astounding. But then the question is, what is Abraham's requirement? And that's a part of the emphasis of this whole passage is the requirement of Abraham. Did you see it all over the passage? Look what he says right after at the very beginning in verse 1. What does he say right after he introduces himself to Abraham? I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. Right at the very beginning of the covenant. It's his requirement of Abraham. Abraham, you must walk before me and be blameless. All these promises that I'm giving to you, they're everlasting promises, but you must... Here's your requirement. Walk before me and be blameless. What's he calling for there? He's calling for this life that is wrapped around God. That God is at the very center of his life. That everything you do, Abraham, is to be lived out before me. That I'm the ultimate reality in your life. That you live blameless. That is, that you live your life in obedience to me. That's the requirement. What's happening? We see also another requirement that's emphasized in verse 9. Then God said to Abraham, as for you, you must keep my covenant. You must keep my covenant. A requirement of Abraham. 
you and your descendants after you for the generations to come. What is this requirement? Second part of verse 10, every male among you must be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. So God commands and requires that Abraham, the basis of this covenant is based upon him obeying and being circumcised, both himself and his children and his whole household. Now, this is personal. That's rough. You imagine being Abraham? If you're a guy here, whoa, okay, this is getting serious. What is circumcision? Why is God doing this? Well, it was like God's brand. You know what you do with cattle? If you've got cattle and you want to put your name on them, you, you burn it into them. Well, anytime you make a covenant, you cut a covenant. This is a way of God branding his people. It's a sign. It reminds them, I belong in covenant to him. But yet also, it reminds me of my requirements to him. Look at the last thing that it says there. Verse 14, any uncircumcised male who has been circumcised in the flesh, who has been uncircumcised in the flesh, will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. The circumcision was to be a sign that if I break covenant, I will be cut off from God. I will be cut off from your people. If If your descendants, your children break covenant with me, they will be cut off. You see, it's conditional upon his obedience and the obedience of his children. Now, just as an aside here, it's very important to see, especially because we're in a very individualistic culture, that God deals with people as families. He deals with us corporately as a people. It's very hard for us to get that, especially in the West, in Western culture, because we think very individualistically. Like God just deals with me as individuals. But just know here, God enters into a covenant with Abraham and his entire household. Everyone who's in his family. And they get the mark of the covenant. Now circumcision in the New Testament becomes baptism. Baptism is the marker of the new covenant that marks entrance into the new covenant. So what do we learn from this? Notice this, God has come and he has made unconditional promises to his people, everlasting covenant. I'm never going to leave you. I will be your God, you will be my people, no matter what. And then at the same time, you must keep my covenant. Walk before me and be blameless. Do you see the tension there? Do you see that tension? I mean, even in the passage, this tension, is it unconditional or is it conditional? Is it something that God is going to do all the way, or is it something that's based upon us? This tension is not just in this passage, but throughout the whole Bible, where God is continually saying, I'll never leave you or forsake you. I can never deny you. But at the same time, he says, I must punish sin. I I cannot bless a disobedient people. Not only do you see this tension everywhere in the Scriptures, it literally drives the whole narrative of the Bible. As you read the Bible, what do you see over and over? You see God calling His covenant people to be loyal to Himself and yet them blowing it over and over and over. And so that literally drives the story of the Bible. It's God saying, how do I do this? What have you done to me? 
I want to bless you. But yet, I'm a holy God that must punish sin. What am I going to do? How am I going to reconcile this? And that becomes the ultimate question of the Bible. How can God be loving and gracious and merciful and patient and yet at the same time be holy and just? How can He be both? Do you see the problem that God Himself has? How is it resolved? Well, the clue comes in Genesis 15 that we looked at a couple weeks ago. Do you remember that, that ceremony? In Genesis 15, as God comes to Abraham in that covenant ceremony. You remember what he has Abraham do? He comes to Abraham and he says, Abraham, I want you to sacrifice these animals and I want you to, to cut them in half and separate them and create an aisle in the middle. And so we read that and we're like, what is going on here? But Abraham knew very clearly what was happening. It was a covenant ceremony. In the ancient world, whenever a greater king would enter into a covenant with a lesser king, they would have a ceremony like that. And it would be a picture of the curse that would fall upon them if they didn't hold up their end of the covenant. So it was a way of saying, if I don't hold up my part, the, my requirements in the covenant, let me be cut in two. Let me be torn to pieces. Let me be cursed and cut off. And so what would happen in the ceremony is that the lesser king or the servant would walk through the sacrificed parts of the animals. And in doing that would be a way of saying, I now call these curses upon myself if I do not come through. But something remarkable happens in that scene. Do you remember it? As darkness falls upon that scene... And Abraham would have been expecting that now was the time for him to walk in between the animals. But that doesn't happen. God appears in a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. God always makes his presence known through smoke and fire. It's a picture of God's presence. And God passes between the animals. God himself takes the curse upon himself. Even after God passes through, Abraham would have imagined, now it's my turn to go between these. I'm promising that I will fulfill this or else, and yet the ceremony ends. It's just God that passes through. You see what's happening there? God is saying, I put myself on the hook for both ends of the covenant. I'm going to obligate myself that may I be torn apart if I don't keep my end of the covenant, but may I be torn apart if you don't keep your end. You see, God comes and fulfills both sides of the covenant. You see, that is a foreshadowing of Christ. It's pointing us ahead to the cross. Even at that point, even here in Genesis, it's pointing us to the cross of Jesus, where, God, where Jesus literally would be torn apart in order to fulfill both sides of the covenant. See, even then, God knew that the only way for me to reconcile both my, my holiness and my justice and my love and my mercy together is if I come in the middle and I take the curse. See, that was why Jesus came. He came and became one of us to perfectly keep covenant in our place. He perfectly, he walked before the Father and was blameless all of his life. He fulfilled the covenant and yet on the cross was torn apart 
for the curse that should have fallen upon us. See, only in the person of Jesus is that tension resolved. It's only in the cross. That's the only way for it to come together. See, it's easy for us to think that grace is lowering the bar. You ever think that? You know, grace means, ah, don't worry about it, you know. God grades on the curve. You remember that in school? You know, you get some some test that's just crazy hard. And there's almost a comfort to you because you know, well, everybody's going to flunk this, so you got to grade on the curve, right? There's no way you can make this count. So what we naturally imagine is that grace is God saying, you know what, that was too hard. I shouldn't have asked you to do all of that. The law's too hard to obey. Let me just lower that for you. So you just get it real low so you can get over it yourself. That's not what grace is. God does not lower the bar. He crosses it in the person of Jesus. You see, if you are united to Jesus by faith, you are a covenant keeper. In spite of all that's true of you in your life, if you're in union with Him by faith, God looks upon you as one who has perfectly kept the covenant. And in all ways that we have been unfaithful, in all the ways that we have broken His covenant, The curse has fallen on Jesus. You see, the the cross is, it's the secret revealed of the whole story of the Bible. It all turns on that. This morning we get the privilege of coming to the communion table. And communion is a covenant renewal ceremony. It's, It's a meal that is experienced by those who are in covenant with God. And as we come to this table, we don't come on the basis of our own goodness. We come on the basis of the faithfulness of Jesus in our place. And so if this morning, if you're thinking about coming to this table, listen, if you're not in covenant with Jesus, you should not come to this table. It would be coming to bring judgment upon yourself. But if you are united to Jesus by repentance and faith, this table is open to you we got no business at coming to this table and meeting with the living God, with God Almighty, in light of what's really true of our hearts. we got no business. But through union with Christ, we are welcomed with freedom and joy to come and meet Him at this table. Let's now come to Him in repentance. If we could, we're going to pray a prayer of confession together. If we could bring that up here. To prepare our hearts to come to the communion table. Let me just encourage you. Don't just let this be a rote thing that you read through. Make this your your prayer, your prayer of confession and repentance to the Lord as we prepare our hearts to come and meet Him at the communion table. Let's pray together. Merciful God, we pardon all who truly repent and turn to You. We humbly confess our sins and ask Your mercy. We have not loved You with a pure heart nor have we loved our neighbor as ourselves. We have not done justice, loved mercy, or walked humbly with you, our God. Have mercy on us, O God, in your loving kindness, in your great compassion, cleanse us from our sin. Create in us a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within us. Do not cast us from your presence or take your Holy Spirit 
from us. Restore to us the joy of your salvation and sustain us with your bountiful spirit. To the glory of your name and for the sake of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Take a few moments to confess silently your sin to the Lord. Father, we confess to you that as we see the conditions of your covenant, the reality is is that we have not loved you in the way that you have called us to love. We've not put you at the center of our life in every area of life. And Lord, we've run after so many other things for life and security and meaning and identity. The truth is, is that we have all broken covenant with you. But Father, we praise you that you have sent Jesus to fulfill the covenant in our place so that through union with him alone, we might know your love and welcome. Would you now let the truth of the gospel, the truth of your love and your acceptance of us in Christ, just wash over us right now. Let it just sink down deep, deep, deep into our hearts. And at this table... Would you meet us? Would you take the truths of the gospel and just press them deeper into our hearts that we would be set free and that we would be empowered to live for you in your kingdom alone? In Christ's name we pray, amen. Now a few instructions here, the way that we do communion is that you come forward and kneel at the kneelers and the elders will serve you the bread and the wine or the grape juice. The juice is in the little cups. There's wine in the chalice, if you'd prefer that, just let us know. Um, If you are not a follower of Jesus, if you're not in covenant with Him, if you've not been baptized, that's the marker of entering covenant with Him, uh, or if you're just unsure of where you are with Jesus this morning, you shouldn't come and take communion. Um, Scripture warns you against that. Uh, Instead, I would invite you to take Christ to come to Him, uh, to open your heart and repent and trust in what He has done alone in your place. That's the invitation here. Uh, If you wish not to take communion for any reason, you can stay in your seat and just sing. Uh, We're going to sing a number of worship songs here and consider what we've talked about or the words of the song. Or you can come forward and be prayed for and not take communion. If you want to be prayed for and not take communion, just put your hands down like this and let the elders know Uh, that you don't want to be served, but you want to be prayed for. Uh, But for those of you who are in covenant with Jesus and are looking to Him alone for the acceptance of the Father, this table's for you. It's, It's not based upon your performance or your fitness, but upon His performance and His fitness. So we invite you, follower of Jesus, to come and feast upon Jesus by faith. On the night in which He was betrayed, Jesus took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my covenant, this is my body which is broken for you, take and eat from it all of you. And in like manner after the supper he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed 
for the remission of your sins. For as often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we proclaim and show forth the Lord's death until he comes. So followers of Jesus, we invite you to come and feast upon Jesus by faith.